uh, you know, sort of uh, shake the tree to make so sure. So today we're going to talk only about Hamilton and finish up what we started, which is uh, why many thought that Hamilton didn't make a big contribution to the convention when, in fact, he did all the dirty work. I wouldn't say he did all the dirty work, but he, he did substantial work that is underappreciated. So we're going to talk about that, and it's really it's a historic investigation. And, uh, it, you know, for people who really want to get into the weeds, and I've got several books sitting on my lap, which I'm going to mention to you, and this is the documentary that we're working on. So this will hopefully one day uh, come to a theater near you or to Netflix or Amazon Prime or wherever else, you know, the documentary gets shown. Uh, but there, there's lots of work that's happening behind the scene, and I, I can mention some of the people who we're working with on, on this project. But really, t- today is the continuation of the Constitutional Convention, and let me give more background, and then if you want to tell people where they can they can read a lot of this material. But uh, let's, Well, let's go ahead. StatuesAndStories.com are all the written stuff, and of course, the audio uh, library for the past shows up until, I think, a couple of them. I'd like to know... Uh, What's become of that? Uh, I need a call to my webmaster. You know, this is community radio, and people got to deliver for me. And uh, you can come to the Statues and Story tab here on WSQFradio.com. I'm WSQF 94.5 Blink Radio, Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson. But one thing before we start, do you know what today is? What is today? Today is the Donald 14th. Trump's birthday. What's okay. up? All right, you, you trumped me. I did not I know that. I trumped you, man. You've been trumped. All right, go ahead. Oh, I had to do that before you started. Go for it. All right. So there, there are several books that are going to come together tonight. So just And we talked about this last week, how if you want to know what went on in the convention, the most important source of information is James Madison's notes. And he parks himself right up front. Now, not too far from where Washington is sitting on a raised platform, and he does what he had done during his career. He takes very good notes, and uh, you know, he was, in a way, a stenographer during the convention. He sits up close so we can hear, and from time to time, people give him their, their you know, if they had written speeches, they give him their written speeches, happens a few times. And remember, they meet from May, the first day that they have a And he was very, he was very um, meticulous when he wrote these notes, Madison was. Right, and it tells you how busy he was. So during the day of the convention, and they were working six to eight-hour days, you know, some days longer than others, uh, but they would start at approximately 10 o'clock, and they'd work through late in the afternoon, and they'd go have dinner, um, and they would not have lunch at the convention. So they're working from after breakfast all the way through dinner time, And um, what else? So after the convention ends and he eats dinner, then he would go back to his boarding house, and he would you know, fix his notes and fill in the details. So he was very busy. And this happens from May 25th is the first day where they have a quorum and they actually start doing business all the way through September 17th. So we've got Madison's notes. But the problem was that the early historians didn't have Madison's notes until 1840 when they were published, because this was supposed to be secret. And, uh, you know, he was a man, a man of honor. So he dies, I want to say 1836, and his notes were published in 1840. But prior versions of notes had leaked out. So Yates was a delegate from New York, and we'll talk about Yates today. We talked about Yates last week. So Yates was, in a way, he's the, I won't call them enemies, but he was the, if, if Hamilton is the hero and the Federalists are the heroes, then Yates and Lansing, and then there are others that we can mention, Mason and, uh, and Edmund Randolph, 
those who don't want to support the Constitution are the, the anti-federalists, and they're not yet anti-federalists because that word doesn't come out until ratification and, and a little bit later, but to those that are opposing the Constitution, uh, so the anti-federal delegates, if you will, uh, so they, they leak. So, so Yates leaks out some information, and he publishes it. It was referred to as the secret proceedings and debates of the convention. So that was published several years earlier, uh, and a lot of people thought that was really the truth of what happened, but it was only skeletal, and it wasn't because Yates and Lansing, the New York delegates, leave early. They leave in early July. Then you're not going to have the July, the August, and the September more important information, which you get with Madison's notes. So one of the books I have in front of me is called The Notes of Debates in the Federal Convention of 1787, reported by James Madison. So this is the 1840 book. I also want to talk about 1911. And 1911 is the year that Professor Max Ferran from Yale, he combined together. And there were other notes that had leaked out. There were notes from Elbridge Gerry, and he was an anti-federalist. He doesn't sign the Constitution. Uh, and there were some other notes. Uh, McHenry was a delegate who took some notes, and others had done sketches. So what does Max Ferran do? And the answer is he combines Madison's notes with these other bits and pieces. Hamilton did some notes. There was a Hamilton plan. There was a Virginia plan. There was a New Jersey plan. There was a Pinckney plan. So Professor Max Moran, in 1911, he wants to do in three volumes. He combines everything together. He puts it together, and you know that's the go-to source today. The, you know, all the historians that have to focus on this time period, they use Max Moran. If you cite the Moran at page three or whatever page it is, everybody knows who works in this area what, what they're talking about. So there's one other book I want to mention, which was in 1987, which was the anniversary of the bicentennial 200 years of the Constitution, because remember, it was written in 1787. So in 1987, 200 years later, you have a professor, and I think he was a professor, but he, he worked at the Library of Congress. His name was James Hudson, H-U-T-S-O-N, and he does the supplement. So the name of this book is called The Supplement to Max Ferran, the records of the Federal Convention. So Hudson gets the remaining odds and ends that had come to light since 1911, since 1912, since the early 1900s. So these were additional records that came to light, and he publishes, I'll call it Volume 4 to Ferran, but it's it's really Hudson's supplement. So these are the materials that we're using, and this is to tell the story and the continuation of the story about what happened in Philadelphia from May until September of 1787. And I'm encouraging folks, if you want to follow along, I do have a post, as Manny mentioned, on Statutes and Stories. So it's statutesandstories.com, and the and is spelled out, statutes, A-N-D, stories.com. You go to the index, and from the index you go to the blog, or you can just Google it, and you'll find uh, Statutes and Stories. This is the title of this blog post is Hamilton at the Philadelphia Convention. And we started off last week talking about how you know Hamilton, prior to the convention, did a tremendous amount of work with Madison and others to get the convention to happen. And Hamilton was writing letters as early as June of uh, 1780 time frame. Um, I'm not sure about June, but I'll check the dates. But Hamilton writes a series of letters very early on. Uh, to James Duane, who becomes the mayor of New York. He was a delegate from New York to the, the, before the Constitutional Convention, you had the, the, and before the Confederation Congress, you had the Continental Congress. So Duane was a delegate from New York to the Continental Congress. So Hamilton is writing to Duane, who is his representative. This is when Hamilton was on Washington's military team, his military family, or his advisors. He was, he was Washington's right-hand man 
according to the musical. So Hamilton, in his free time, was laying out these objections and these policies and plans that he had about what's going to happen after we win the war. So that's a letter from 1780, which was uh, one of the worst years of the war because of some, some big losses we had in 1780. Uh, but again, Hamilton is already thinking ahead. Uh, so the point is that he writes these essays, this is in 1781, 1782, called the Continentalist Essays, and you can track his thinking from these letters and these essays, and uh, we talked about an, another evening, the Annapolis Convention, uh, this is Annapolis in Maryland, and the Annapolis Convention didn't have enough delegates, so they couldn't do anything, but they did call for the Philadelphia Convention, so this is the path of how we wind up in Philadelphia starting in May. They were supposed to start the second week of May. They didn't have enough folks. They didn't have a quorum. So May 25th is the big day where they formally get convened. We talked about this last week. Uh, the first order of business is they set up a rules committee, and Hamilton is on this three-member rules committee, which sets up what the procedure is going to be. We also talked about how Washington was unanimously chosen as the presiding officer for the convention. So when you look at some of the materials, you'll see Washington is the president. He's not the president of the United States yet. He's the president of the Constitutional Convention. They also choose William Jackson as the secretary for the convention. He's in charge of making sure the doors are closed and sealed and guarded because they're meeting in secret uh, for reasons that we talked about last week. And the last thing I want to mention before we dive in is last week we, we teased out this issue of voting. And how did the voting happen at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention? And if many, if you remember, sort of played out a couple scenarios. And if you remember, there were some committees which had one delegate from each state. And Rhode Island didn't send any delegates, so that brings you down from 13 to 12. And New York only sent three delegates. But remember, Yates and Lansing, who were Hamilton's co-delegates, they left because they didn't like what the Constitutional Convention was up to. So often you only had 11 states starting in July. So these important committees were referred to as you know, committees of 11 and a lot of compromise happened on these committees of 11, one delegate per state. So the issue I teed up, teed up for you last week was how did they vote for these committees on who would be put on a committee? And keep in mind, there were also two examples, and it only happened twice, where you had committees of five delegates. And these were, I would argue, two of the most important committees. The committee of five delegates happened twice, was the Committee on Style, and Hamilton is on that committee, also the Committee of Detail, and the Committee on Detail does, um, you know, that, that comes up with 23 articles. It combines all the motions that have been made during this four-month period into 23 articles. And when I say that number 23, people will say, Adam, I have my constitution. I've looked at it. The constitution has seven articles, not 23. And that's true. So the Committee on Detail gave us 23 articles, but then the Committee of Style organized everything into the, the final version we have today, which is the seven articles. And just to tell you, everybody knows that Article One is the legislative branch, which is Congress. So what the Committee on Style did is it took all of the motions that had to do with Congress and Congress's power and limits on Congress and how Congress gets elected, put all of that into Article One. Everything having to do with the president, which was in those 23 articles, was reorganized into Article Two, which is the executive, the president. Anything dealing with the courts, that's going to go into Article Three. So that's what the committee in detail does, and, does, and that was uh, Gouverneur Morris. And we did a separate show, I want to say, one night on Gouverneur Morris. And there are different ways to pronounce his name. I pronounce it uh, Gouverneur, but uh, others pronounce it Gouverneur. If you look at uh, the Adams correspondence between Abigail Adams and John Adams, she spells out how to pronounce it, and it looks like it's Gouverneur. Uh, but uh, his, his family was French or French Huguenot. So maybe if you say it with a French accent, but it's not governor, it's gouverneur. 
So long story short, the, the issue that I want to try to address now is how do these committees vote? And there was good scholarship that was done by an author, David O. Stewart. And Manny, I'm going to mention to you here, sort of with a smile on my face, if you have a very common name, David and Stewart, you can't just sign a book, David Stewart. You need to distinguish yourself, so it's David O. Stewart. So David O. Stewart was a lawyer for many years. Uh, in fact, he has a new book out dealing with Washington, a biography, and he also writes historic fiction. And he clerked earlier in his career, I want to say, for Justice Potter Stewart at the Supreme Court, or may have been Powell, I'm not sure, but he, he clerked for a justice of the Supreme Court, and he did a legal career, and then he now writes uh, history. And uh, it's interesting how he studied this issue of how the committees vote, and I'll explain to you why it's important. But one way the voting could happen, and, and again, I'm going to tease up the issue, one way the voting could happen is if each state selects its own delegates. So if it's a committee of 11 and each state has one delegate on the committee, then one way to do it is that the, if we're talking about Virginia, then all the Virginia delegates vote on who they want to be their representative on the committee. And that's a very reasonable and that's a very intuitive way of doing things. Yeah, and, but, and what, can, but what happens when there's only one delegate? So he can't be on multiple committees, can he? Okay, so and that's a good point, that sometimes you had multiple committees at the same time, but for the committees I'm going to talk about now, there was only one committee at the time because those committees were so important. When the Committee on Style and Arrangement was working, there were no other committees at that time. But, but the issue is, and that's a good point, the issue is on a smaller committee where you only have five, and it happened twice, the Committee on Detail and the Committee on Style. So Hamilton's on the Committee on Style, which was the last committee. Um, this was in September 8th to September 12th is when I met. So the question is, if you only have five members on a committee, would New York choose its New York delegate? And I'll explain why that couldn't happen. Or would Philadelphia and Pennsylvania choose the delegate for Pennsylvania? And what, the, what Madison's notes say is that they voted by ballot to choose the five members on the committee on detail. And it lists the names of the members. So without getting into too much detail, the first name was William Samuel Johnson. It was the first name listed in Madison's notes for the committee on detail. And he, by the way, was the chairman of the committee, so it makes sense that his name is listed first. But then on September 8th, it lists the other four members on the committee on detail. And Hamilton is the second name mentioned, then Gouverneur Morris is the third name, then Rufus King, and um, I'm trying to think, and then, I'm sorry, Madison is mentioned, and then Rufus King. So those are the five members. But the question here is, if it's only five members and there are 11 states, how do you choose those five members? And the implication is that, you know, should all of the states, be able to choose, and we're only talking about 11 states, should all of the states be able to choose a delegate, go back to our committee of 11? Should the small states like Delaware and, and uh, other small states, New Jersey, should they be voting on who the Virginia delegate is? Right? And the answer is no. It makes more sense that Virginia chooses its delegate, New Jersey chooses its delegate on a committee for 11. That makes sense. That's intuitive. Now, for the audience's sake, what uh, since most people understand the founding of the nation as 13 colonies, why do you say 11 states, uh, four states, four states, uh, sorry, yeah, did not appear at all, they just didn't attend the convention, period. Right, so Rhode Island was a no-show. Rhode Island didn't send anybody, so that brings you down from 13 to 12, so you only had 12 states in attendance. And the reason why I say 11 is because New York only sent three delegates, and then Yates and Lansing, who I don't want to call them my villains, but they're they're not my protagonists, they're my... Um, you know, the opposite of a protagonist, an antagonist, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so, so New York's two delegates leave. 
So Hamilton is the only delegate from New York when he returns in August and September. So what's the point? The point is that you only have 11 states because New York doesn't count. When they only have one delegate, uh, according to the rules, and this had to do with rules that were set up in New York from the New York legislature, you needed at least two. So because Yates and Lansing left, that makes New York, you know, Hamilton is there in his individual capacity. And that's interesting. If you pull up online, and I invite you to do it, go to the National Archives website or just do a Google search for pictures of the Constitution. So the Constitution, the parchment, is four pages. And page four is the page that has the signatures at the bottom. So Washington signs first because he's the presiding officer of the convention, and he's also a delegate from Virginia. But then it lists the, the states. And it's interesting how it says New York. But it's Hamilton signing individually. He's the only person signing from New York, whereas the other delegates are signing on behalf of their states, whereas Hamilton is signing in his individual capacity because with only one New York delegate, his vote does not count. You needed two votes from New York in order for that to count or two delegates from New York for that to count. So let me get back to the question. So he said for the record, basically, for the record, but not the official vote. Correct. What Hamilton does once Yates and Lansing leave, it's not going to be official. So he doesn't have a vote, but he can. And we talked about this, I think, last week. He does get to participate in the debates. He does get to be on committees. He does get to make motions, but he doesn't get to vote because New York does not have two delegates. So when they leave, that that sort of cuts him off at the knees and that, that limits what he can do. But in a way, it empowers him because now he's a free actor. He can do what he wants, although he cannot vote. Right. So and that gets to this importance of the committee on style, which is the last committee appointed on September 8th. Hamilton is chosen for this committee and it raises the question, how does Hamilton get on this committee of style? And when I say style, people think, okay, you know, who cares? It's just style. But the formal name of the the committee is the Committee on Style and Arrangement, and they do the final draft of the Constitution. They also do the Constitution's cover letter, which we'll come back to. They also do the two resolutions that deal with the ratification process. And people, you know, who listen to the show a lot are very familiar how, in order for the Constitution to get ratified, originally, under the Articles of Confederation, you needed a unanimous vote of all 13 states. That's what the Articles of Confederation say. But they knew in Philadelphia that Rhode Island is not going to play ball, and it's going to be we're wasting our time if we require all 13 states to agree. So what they decide in Philadelphia is we're going to circumvent the Articles, we're going to trash the Articles, and that's my word for it, and we're going to instead go over the head of Congress we're going to go directly to the people, right? And that's the preamble, we the people. So what the Constitution, the way that the Constitution worked, the way they got it through was they had Congress send it to the 13 states, the states set up ratification conventions, and the 13 ratification conventions, which were elected by the people, and when I say the people, this is the, you know, women didn't vote. Uh, in New Jersey, there were some instances of women voting, but I don't think for the Constitutional Convention, uh, for the ratification convention. And, of course, Native Americans didn't vote. Um, people below the age of, I don't, I don't know what it was in different states, and most importantly, slaves were not part of that conversation. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, this was very democratic for its time period, and we've come a long way. And the document that they created, while imperfect, you know, is the longest-lasting constitution in the history of the world. And we owe a debt of gratitude to the founders for what they accomplished despite their imperfections. So with that said, you know, the ratification process was let the people from the states agree whether or not to have a constitution. And the magic number was nine. You needed nine states to ratify. And New York became the 11th state to ratify. And then New Hampshire, I'm sorry, after New York, it was North Carolina and then Rhode Island finally ratified. 
after Washington was president in 1790. All right, so let me get back to this issue of the committees, and then we'll, we'll plow ahead. So going to our issue of five members on a committee, how do you choose those five members? Because it's not going to be every state getting a delegate. And the answer is that it was a vote by member, by delegate, not by delegation. So because it was a vote by delegate, they voted by ballot, by delegate, that's how Hamilton gets selected, because New York doesn't get to put him on the committee, because there is no New York formal delegation. And um, let me read from this article that was written by David Stewart, and I'm going to just sum it up for you. So he says, only if the delegates voted as individuals within, quote, the House, could they have selected Hamilton for the committee on style. The New York delegation could not choose Hamilton for the committee because New York was not even officially present. And you picked up on that, Manny. They weren't officially present at the convention at the time. And we th- like- we discussed uh, at times that perhaps it was um, sabotage on behalf of Governor Stanton or, you know, they wanted to alienate Hamilton or they didn't want him to take control. Um, let the audience know why you think based on maybe there's notes to that effect, why the other two left and left Hamilton kind of basically disarmed, is handcuffed and not be able to vote? Right. Or is so, it just so, a New York thing? <laughs> the New York thing that still exists today. <laughs> so we have a blog post on that about Hamilton on the New York delegation, because we celebrated that a couple months ago. And the governor of New York, this should be an easy name for you to remember. This was one of your favorite presidents, right, before G.W. Bush. Uh, yeah, before George, George, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. There's Herbert Walker Bush, and then there's G- George W. Bush. So w, w. George you w. gotta say it correctly, W. W. Right. So before W, who was the president? Because that's the same name. So the New York governor was Clinton, right? So oh, governor, I, and I said Stanton. Excuse me, said Stanton. Right. So oh God, people have probably lost their way home. I'm sorry. Here on Blink Radio, Mac on the so Rock George is Mac Clinton on the Pebble. George Clinton was the, not the musician, George Clinton was the governor of New York in the 1780s, a very powerful governor. And we talked about this, and people can read about it on statutesandstories.com. But Governor Clinton does not want to support a stronger constitution. He was very happy to have New York getting the income from taxing ships coming into the ports. And uh, by the way, that's how New York was benefiting whenever Connecticut, you know, people from Connecticut are importing goods into New York. You know, Connecticut residents are paying taxes, which is benefiting New York. And same thing with New Jersey. New Jersey residents are paying taxes. They're subsidizing New York because this uh, this the trade is happening through New York ports, and New York is collecting these taxes, even though the goods are going to New Jersey and Connecticut. And so he was very happy, uh, if you want to call it the status quo. And he was very opposed to the Constitution because he was he was comfortable with the articles. He thought only minimal changes were necessary. And let me answer your question, and then we'll jump into our discussion. So your question was, um, you know, if I'm going to rephrase it for you. So you're asking, you know, was this purposeful that Governor Clinton tries to sabotage Hamilton? And we talked about this another evening, and the answer is yes. It was very, it was very well known that Hamilton was supporting a vigorous or energetic federal government. And he was the one behind the scenes that uh, was working with Madison. Hamilton wrote the Annapolis Convention Resolution calling for the Philadelphia Convention. So it was very well known. Hamilton, for years, had been beating the drums of how we have to pass an impost. That was the word they used for it. An impost is a tax, and it was a 5% tax on imports. So he wanted the federal government to have independent source of income, which would have been this 5% impost. 
and five percent is a very small number, but back then it would have been a big change to give to give the federal government money instead of having to. And this is the terminology that we talked about before. Back then, it was called requisitions that the states were asked to give money to Congress. Those were called requisitions. And I gave some statistics, I think, last week. How the last requisition was seeking four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the budget for Congress, and they only received six hundred and sixty-three dollars because the states just weren't giving money to the federal government. And that 450 was to cover operating expenses, plus they had millions of dollars that they owed in debt to the, the Netherlands and to France you know, from the creditors, and money that was owed to the soldiers and for pensions, uh, because the soldiers were paid with IOUs, basically. So the, the federal government was on the verge, basically, of bankruptcy. Um, you, had, you mentioned Shays Rebellion. Shays Rebellion had happened in the, in the January time frame, so this is late. 1786, early 1787, and we did an entire show about Chase Rebellion. So it's becoming increasingly clear that things are falling apart, and we talked about this before. The states are trying to attack each other. The states are uh, at each other's necks, and uh, things are coming apart at the seams. So they realized, and if you read some of Washington's letters and some of the letters back and forth with Washington, Knox was the Secretary of War or Secretary of Defense, whatever you want to call it, and, uh, and some of the others that were intimates of Washington, you know, they realized that we got to fix this because otherwise we fought the Revolutionary War, and what was it all for? It was for naught if we can't get our act together. And we talked about how winning the war is the hard part, but sometimes the harder part is winning the peace and putting together a government that can, that can uh, w- without going after each other, that can you know, have a semblance of normalcy after, after a bitter war. So, so to answer the question that we raised about the committees, so relying on David Stewart, who did a lot of work, David O. Stewart, looking at what the procedures were, what the practices were under the Confederation Congress and the Continental Congress, the way it was done is that the delegations in Rhode Island would choose the Rhode Island delegate, and Virginia would choose the Virginia delegate on a committee where a state only got one delegate. And that makes sense, because you don't want a small state voting for who the delegate for a large state would be. So it's, the decision was made per state, would choose their own delegates. And on a smaller committee where every state doesn't have a delegate, that was chosen individually. So they would all vote on who those five members would be. And that answers that question, how Hamilton got on the Committee on Style that all the delegates, and there were about 42 of them at the time, voted. And Hamilton was probably the second vote maker. And that's why he was listed second in Madison's notes. So does that answer that question? Is that as clear as as mud? Absolutely. All right. So that, that's the, the, the framework of how the convention committees work. And we're going to spend some time talking about the committee on detail, which was an important committee. My computer went to sleep, so let me turn it back on and people can follow along. On and watch out. That might be Putin hacking. What's up? <laughs> yeah. Well, the computer went to sleep. All right. So let's pick up. Last week, we talked about Hamilton leaves in July. He writes a letter to Washington and I mentioned how Hamilton's sort of taking the temperature. He's doing informal polling because all the other delegates, by and large, are in Philadelphia. But Hamilton is traveling the country because he has work to do in New York and otherwise. And he writes a letter to Washington, and people can click on the links if they want to read it. Washington write, 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 writes him back. So let me just read a little bit from Washington's letter because I think it's a great letter. So Washington writes back. So Hamilton writes to Washington on July 3rd. And Washington writes back on July 10th. And Washington replies that 
the men who, quote, oppose a strong and energetic government, this is Washington, were, quote, narrow-minded politicians or under the influence of local views. And that makes perfect sense. And Washington is basically saying that those who aren't going to sign the Constitution or who are fighting us in in, in opposing real change are narrow-minded or they're just subject to the influence of local views, which is exactly the problem in New York. And Washington indicates, and I'm sorry you went away, I wish you were back. And when Washington sends a letter saying, I wish something, then you get in line and you listen to Washington. <clears throat> so, so in other words, Washington is basically the man you got, you got to kiss his ring for some reason because of his tenacity on the battlefield. Washington was the father. And if you're in, you know. Now, wait a minute. Board. Here's something I need to ask you because he, yeah. ne- he never really comes up. John Adams, you know he was a, uh, a, a vociferous person. Why doesn't he uh, – what's his role in this second convention, and did he play a role at all? Good question. So it's not just Adams, and you're making a good point, man. It's Adams and Jefferson, and it's a very easy answer. Adams is in London. He is the American delegate or the minister to England. He's our minister, and that's probably one of the most important – locations to have a minister. And you also have Jefferson as our minister to, to, to France in Paris. So Adams is in London and Jefferson is in Paris. So two of the most important founders were not at the Constitutional Convention. They played very important roles during the war with the Declaration of Independence, that Adams was on the committee, as was Franklin, and Jefferson was on the committee that writes the Declaration of Independence, but they're in Europe at this time, and you know they're writing back and forth. So you can read Adams' letters, this is John Adams' letters to other delegates, and he also had written a book talking about constitutions, and I don't know if we did a whole show on it, but I may have talked about how in 1780, John Adams had written the Massachusetts Constitution. In fact, I have a book published uh, you know, a couple of years later, which has the Massachusetts Constitution, which is one of the most important constitutions at that time frame. Why? Because the system of how the Massachusetts Constitution works, in a way, was a model for the federal constitution. So they're not inventing things out of whole cloth in Philadelphia. They're borrowing from what these 13 states had done. And I think that's a perfect example of you know, one of the beauties of the American system of federalism. And, you know, people can debate about big government, small government. People can debate about different forms of government. But one of the beauties of America is that you have the different states who will experiment. The states will, and we can debate about Republicans and Democrats. But the states, you know, and, you know, if you're from a certain mindset, you know, if you like the red states, that's great. If you like the blue states, that's great, too. But, you know, they, they do things a little bit differently. And ultimately, you find out some solutions work, some don't. And again, people will agree or disagree. But the point is that because these different states, 13 states, came up with their own constitutions and had been living with these constitutions for basically a decade during the Revolutionary War through 1787, they had experience. And most of the delegates in Philadelphia were very familiar with their state constitutions, and some of them had written their state constitutions. So John Adams was in London, but and when you look at the New York delegation, Let's see. Hamilton had not written the New York Constitution, but I want to say Yates was one of those who was involved in writing the New York Constitution. Right. And when you look in, uh, let's see, and there may also have been uh, Gouverneur Morris may have been involved in writing the New York Constitution. So and the other big example is uh, Mason. I'm familiar with George Mason. George Mason University. He was eventually going to become a strong anti-federalist, but he was very important in writing the Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Bill of Rights. Uh, so you know, these were all 
I won't call them all geniuses, but they, they, have, a, they have a lot of familiarity with what's going on uh, you know, when they come to Philadelphia. So getting back to Washington's letter and why I think Washington's letter is important, because what it shows, as you can see into Washington's mind when he writes this letter on July 10th to Hamilton, and it shows that he and Hamilton, at least beginning in July 10th, are working together and they're on the same team and they're committed to, and I'm just quoting Washington, to an energetic government. Washington does not want more of the same. He realizes we need to fix this and things are not working under the articles. And today, some of the terms that they would use are not politically correct, um, but there are descriptions about how the government is, is impotent and it's not able to do what needs to be done under the articles. The concern was that um, the, the First Nations, so the, the, the Native American tribes, um, are being fomented by the British. The British haven't withdrawn from the ports, I'm sorry, from, from the forts along the, the Great Lakes. There are concerns that uh, the Spanish are going to close and are, are closing the port of New Orleans, which is a problem for our farmers on the Mississippi. So there are all kinds of issues that are, that are happening. Shays Rebellion is the big example. Um, but there are all kinds of commercial problems and, and, uh, and issues with regard to, to inflation. So they wanted to accomplish something meaningful in Philadelphia. And uh, I think that July 10th letter from Washington is important, and I encourage people to look at it. Now, there's another date I want to talk about, which is July 21st. And this gets back to Governor Clinton in New York. So Hamilton and I have a link if people want to read it. And I also have a, a copy from a newspaper from 1787, a July 21st newspaper article from the newspaper back then was the New York Daily Advertiser, was the biggest New York newspaper. So what does Hamilton do on July 21st? And he writes an anonymous letter to this New York newspaper. And what he does in this letter is he attacks the governor. And I'm going to read you from the article that's published, the letter that Hamilton writes, which gets published in New York. And what this shows is that Hamilton is already starting to play offense in New York because he realizes Yates and Lansing left, Yates and Lansing are poisoning Noel, and he knows that Governor Clinton is going to do everything he can to undermine and prevent this Constitution from getting ratified. And they're still working on the Constitution because they're not going to finish until September. So this is in July where Hamilton writes this letter and gets it published in the New York Daily Advertiser. So I'm going to paraphrase and read some of it. It is currently reported and believed, Hamilton says, it's currently reported and believed that His Excellency Governor Clinton has, in public company, without reserve, reprobated, which means criticized, the appointment of the convention and predicted a mischievous issue of that measure. What does that mean, mischievous? Uh, so in other words, Hamilton is saying that Governor Clinton is saying in New York, and how Hamilton knows this is another conversation, but the, the governor of New York is predicting a mischievous result, even though they haven't finished their work yet. His observations, I'm reading from the article, his observations are said to be, uh, let's see, of this uh, this effect, that the present Constitution is in itself equal to the purposes of the Union. What does that mean? So that Clinton is saying that the current Constitution, which was the Articles of Confederation, is equal to the purposes of the Union, that all we need is the current Constitution. You don't need this new Constitution. Hamilton continues writing that the appointment of a convention is calculated to impress the people with an idea of evils which do not exist. So Hamilton is saying that this governor, Clinton, is the problem. Clinton is saying in New York that these evils don't exist. We don't need to do this Constitution. And continuing to read that if neither nothing well, – let me go back. I'm reading from the article. If either nothing should be proposed by the convention or if they should propose should not be agreed to, one or the other would tend to beget despair in the public mind. And in all probability, the result of their deliberations, whatever it might be, would only serve to throw the community into confusion. So what does that mean? 
Hamilton is taking a shot at Governor Clinton, saying, "Listen, do not listen, people, to Governor Clinton because he's got ulterior motives." And he goes into this in that in that article, and you know he's unfairly criticizing this hard work that's taking place in Philadelphia without having a final solution yet, the final document. Why are you criticizing something when uh, you know it's still a work in progress? So what happens after Hamilton writes this letter to the paper? Then they pile on. So the Clintons, the Clintonians, if you will, in New York start attacking Hamilton. You know, how dare you attack the governor? And he gets a lot of abuse for that. And it's somewhat controversial. But the point is that what Hamilton is doing, he's preventing Clinton from um, laying low and sabotaging the Constitution. Instead, he's putting it out, you know, in the paper that we know that our governor is criticizing the Constitution. He's trying to undermine it. Then let's all be aware of what's happening. Let's not hold any secrets here. Let's be transparent about what's going on. So he, he, in other words, takes the offensive against Clinton. And that was July 21st, 1787. Let me read you from the, uh, in other words, he's not going to let Clinton get away with prejudging the work of the convention. So here's some of the, you know, the, the posts that we have on statutes and stories. So I write that the fact that Hamilton was already taking the offensive against Governor Clinton suggests that he fully understood the uphill battle that the Constitution would face in New York. And now I quote from Professor John Kaminsky, who was a wonderful historian that spent 50 years working in this time period. So according to Kaminsky, Hamilton's defense of the Constitution began two months before the convention ended. And now I'm going to quote from Kaminsky. Kaminsky writes as follows. Seizing the initiative politically, as he had done during the war, Hamilton publicly denounced Governor Clinton as an opponent of the convention, and Hamilton would not allow the governor to stay above the fray waiting for an advantageous moment to take a public stand. Although harshly criticized in the press for alienating the governor, Hamilton rightly anticipated Clinton's anti-federalism, and this probably limited the governor's effectiveness in opposing the new constitution. So I don't take credit for that. I'm just quoting from Professor Kaminsky. So this lets you know what's happening in New York with Hamilton versus Clinton during the convention, let alone what's going to happen after the convention is released. And it's going to be an uphill battle, as I said, to get it ratified. So I make the point, and this gets back to the Constitution's cover letter, that this article that Hamilton writes for the New York Daily Advertiser starts with the phrase, it's currently reported and believed. Let me say it again, currently reported and believed. But the cover letter, which was written in September, uses the expression, it is hoped and believed. And I'm pointing out that reported and believed and hoped and believed, those phrases are very similar, and and these are examples of what I call Hamiltonian fingerprints. It's currently reported and believed and hoped and believed. And and I I give all kinds of examples of these fingerprints, Hamiltonian fingerprints, in some of the posts. So now let's skip ahead to September 8th, which is the day where the committee on style is appointed. And I mention the names of the five members of the committee on style. And I write that um, many historians have said that it was surprising that Hamilton gets appointed to this final committee, the Committee on Style and Arrangement. Why? Because Hamilton was gone for basically all of July. There may have been a Hamilton sighting one day or two in July, but he never shows up at the convention, according to Madison's notes in July. He shows up in August for August 13th, but he's not there basically in August, and he returns in September. And then about a week or so after he returns in September, he's put on this important committee in the last week or two of the convention. So how does this guy who we talked about in prior nights, has been referred to as a celebrated truant. Hamilton is absent more than he is there 
He's not there in July and August, basically. How does he get appointed on this committee when all of the other delegations and all of the other delegates have to vote on who they want to put the five members for this committee? And it's, I argue, not just surprising, which is what historians say, surprising that Hamilton gets put on this committee. Um, it's even more than surprising. It's shocking, and that's quoting from David Stewart. It's shocking that he gets put on the committee. Uh, and it's not just that he gets put on, but he's the second member chosen for the committee. And I have a solution on why he was on the committee and why he was the second member chosen. And I think the answer, which is just obvious, if anyone wants to look at it, the obvious answer to me is the reason that Hamilton was put on the committee was not because, you know, he would know everything that had taken place because he wasn't there for four months. You have Madison on the committee, and Madison had his notes. The reason Hamilton's put on the committee, among other things, is probably that Washington wanted him on the committee, and other delegates wanted him on that committee on style to write the cover letter, because they know that they're going to have to get this thing through. They know it's going to be an uphill battle, as I keep emphasizing, and they know at some point that there's going to be a letter, there was a similar letter written for the Declaration of Independence. So if anyone pulls out the Declaration of Independence and we joke about who was the famous handwriting, the famous signature, and when you sign your name, what you're putting on the piece of paper, you're putting your John Hancock, right? So everybody knows John Hancock signed very big and bold. So he sent a letter to the different state governors giving them a copy of the Declaration of Independence. So the delegates in Philadelphia know we're going to do a cover letter that's going to send the Constitution to Congress that's going to be signed by Washington, and it's going to explain what we did this summer and the importance of this document, because we were meeting in secret. So I argue, and this is part of the Hamilton authorship thesis, that the reason why Hamilton was put on the Committee on Style and chosen as the second delegate for this committee is so he could write the convention's cover letter to be signed by Washington. And remember, during the war, Washington would do Hamilton's, I'm sorry, Hamilton would do Washington's correspondence. So it makes perfect sense that Hamilton would be the one that would write the cover letter for Washington. So that's the appointment of the Committee on Style. And let me read you a little bit of uh, some of the blog posts, and people can go to statutesandstories.com or just Google Constitution's cover letter, and you'll, you'll come into some of these posts. So based on the order of the names listed in Madison's notes, and remember, Madison's notes are very important. It was also the journal, and the journal was kept by the Secretary Jackson, and the journal lists the same five members in that same order. Jackson. First, he was the, I'm sorry, not Jackson, Johnson. William Samuel Johnson was the committee chairman. And then right after Johnson, you have Hamilton as the second name appointed to the committee on file on September 8th. So according to the post that I wrote, based on the order of names listed in Madison's notes, it is likely that Hamilton was the second delegate selected for the committee on file after Chairman William Samuel Johnson. It's also plausible that Hamilton had the most votes more than any other committee member except for the chairman, Johnson, it becomes less surprising that the celebrated truant, which was Hamilton, would be selected for this committee if there was a specific reason to appoint him. And I'm joking here that uh, this is true, that historian Clinton Rossiter, who is no friend of Hamilton, opines that the other four members of the committee had earned their seats. In contrast to Hamilton, and he says they'd earned their seats, Madison spoke a lot of the at the convention. He was the third most you know, when you count up the number of times a delegate spoke, Madison spoke the third most number of times. Gouverneur Morris spoke the most, and he was appointed to the committee. Uh, who else was on the committee? Madison, Gouverneur Morris, Rufus King was a very was very active in the debate. He's on the committee. So Rossiter wrote that the other four members of the committee had earned their seats in contrast to Hamilton, who had been back on the floor only three working days when he was selected for the committee. What else? 
So despite the surprise that Hamilton was selected to the final committee, many historians acknowledge that Hamilton would not have been named unless he was respected by the convention. So other historians realize that, yes, the fact that he got selected for this committee shows that he was respected. And Rossiter writes, quote, it speaks well of Hamilton's reputation, quote, that he was asked to join these these four stalwarts. So, you know, these other four guys on the committee had done a lot of heavy lifting, so it's no surprise they're on the committee. But why does Hamilton get selected for the committee on file? And again, as I keep emphasizing, to me, it's very clear. The reason he's put on the committee is because Washington wants him, Hamilton wants to be there, and they know that Hamilton can write very effectively for Washington. And there is a job that this letter has to do. This cover letter has to begin the campaign, the ratification campaign. Uh, You know, people are familiar with the Federalist Papers, right? Uh, So, Manny, we do this almost every week. The Federalist Papers come up. 85 essays written by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay. And I'll throw a little bit of trivia here. Jay is not the first person Hamilton asked to write the Federalist Papers. He asked Madison, but he also asked Gouverneur Morris, who happens to be on this committee with Hamilton. And Gouverneur Morris is too busy, and he declare he you know turns down uh, the the opportunity or the invitation from Hamilton. Uh, but if I am right that the Constitution's cover letter was written by Hamilton, which increasingly becomes clear to me the more I delve into this research, in a way the cover letter is the opening. It's the preface, it's the introduction to the Federalist Papers, because it was written, and this is the date. The, the Committee of Style was appointed on September 8th. They finished their work on the 12th. They report the final version of the Constitution, and I should point out that all the historians agree, Madison agrees, and subsequent letters, Governor Morris agrees, that the final version of the Constitution was written by Governor Morris. He was the, quote, penman of the Constitution that organizes the Constitution the way we talked about earlier with Article 1, Article 2, Article 3. He's the guy that does the masterful work of the preamble. Uh, the preamble starts, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. Those are active verbs, right? There's some alliteration there with provide and promote. The way he starts it with we the people, that's all Gouverneur Morris. All the Historians agree. Gouverneur Morris did that final draft of the Constitution, and it was the Committee of Style that you know, worked with Morris uh, on that on the draft. But the committee also reported on September 12th the cover letter and the two resolutions. And I submit that Gouverneur Morris could not, it's not humanly possible that Gouverneur Morris did the Constitution and the preamble and the cover letter, and I suggest that Hamilton was on the committee to do the cover letter. Right. So let me get back into the dates. So the committee is appointed on the 8th, and on the 12th is when they report their work. So in four days' time, basically, they do the cover letter, they do the Constitution, which is heroic, and they do these two resolutions. And it's really, you know, when I say four days, it's sent to the printer, which is Claypool and Dunlop, or the printers for the Constitutional Convention. And Claypool and Dunlop wind up printing the Constitution for all the delegates. So they print, and I'm just estimating here, maybe 60 or 80 copies, probably 60 or so, so that the delegates will each maybe 50 because there are only about 42 of them left, so maybe it's 50. So there are the delegates um, you know, work with their printer, so they have to submit it to the printer on the 11th so the printer can then have it for the following morning so that everybody can see it. So it's really basically four days to do all this work, and I'm submitting that there is no way that Gouverneur Morris does the cover letter and the Constitution. So what happens on the 12th is the, the printed copies are given to everybody so they can take notes on it, and in various you know, museums and the Library of Congress, New York Historical Society, etc., 
you know, you can actually see the comedian style printed copy with the with the notations on it. I think Washington's copy exists and some of the other delegates. And there were some very minor changes that were made. But this would eventually become basically the final version of the Constitution. So it's reported on the 12th and the cover letter is read aloud by paragraph and the delegates vote and approve the cover letter. And this is the only time this happens during the Constitution where a single letter is reviewed by the entire delegation and by all the members of the Constitutional Convention, and it's approved and voted on unanimously. And this is a rare event when you have, I refer to it, and it's not just me, as an act of national deliberation, that this letter, which speaks for the Constitutional Convention, is enormously important. And this is the the... Really, it's the subject of the documentary that we're working on, and maybe I'll have some time one of these days to get into the documentary. All right, so what else do we want to talk about? I want to talk about some other dates. So, and this is what I consider to be very exciting. So on September 8th, which is the first day of the appointment of these delegates to the convention, Hamilton writes a letter to a Mr. Duchesne. And no one will have heard this name before, Duchesne. I had not heard this name before. And let me go back to some of the books I mentioned. So remember, 1911, Ferran does the three volumes. The first one is 1911, and then a couple of years later, they do volume two and three. So he puts everything together in 1911. And then I mentioned that James Hudson, who is the head of manuscripts at the Library of Congress, he does the supplement to Ferrand in 1987, 200-year anniversary. And in the 1987 supplement is where you have this letter that Hamilton writes to Duchesne. So who is Duchesne? And the answer is Duchesne was probably an ambassador from France or a emissary, a representative from France. And Duchesne is asking Hamilton what's going on in the convention. And this makes sense because the different countries want to know what are they doing in Philadelphia? What's going to happen? What's going to change? So from the letter, and I'm not going to read all of it, Duchesne is basically saying to Hamilton, you know, what can you tell me? And Hamilton writes back on September 8th, a very important day. Duchesne writes, uh, Hamilton writes back to Duchesne, I'm very sorry that the situation of affairs here will not permit me to tell you what I want. So Hamilton has you know, sworn to secrecy. They can't release the details. I cannot, without indiscretion, add anything to what I've already said. So Hamilton clearly has been speaking to Duchesne before. Now I want to read the third paragraph of this letter, which I think is enormously important. September 8th, Hamilton to Duchesne. He says, you can tell the Marquis de Lafayette. And by the way, Manny, you want to tell us who is the Marquis de Lafayette? Well, uh, Marquis de Lafayette, he was one of the, you know, one of the French supporters of the revolution. And uh, didn't uh, Lafayette also end up uh, uh, premier of France at one time or no? Or was he just a Battlestar general? So we could do a whole show and probably should about Lafayette. So Lafayette leaves France as a young guy. comes to America because of the war, wants to help America because he is not a friend of Britain. His father was killed by the British, and he inherited his father's estate. His father was a a war hero during the prior war, which was the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. So he comes to America. He comes with money. He comes with enthusiasm, and he winds up working on Washington's team as one of Washington's commanders and one of his uh, leaders. And uh, you know he does a lot during the war. He becomes very friendly with Hamilton. He becomes very friendly with Governor Morris and some of the others, and with Henry Knox. And uh, you know, he then raises money for America and France. He goes back and forth. And he returns with the grasp and with I apologize. I'm not remembering the names. Uh, oh, you pulling a uh, you pulling a Biden? <laughs> so you're too, you're too young, man. Come on. 
I am an excuse, you know. I suffered head injury and strokes, but come on. Rochambeau. That's the name I was struggling with. Rochambeau. So we have Rochambeau is the French general. So he returns with Rochambeau and with the French admiral and the French fleet. So he's enormously important, and uh, he, he plays important roles in France. But when the French Revolution happens, Lafayette gets imprisoned, and he almost gets executed with the guillotine. But the point is that Hamilton says on September 8th, in this letter to Duchesne, and I'm going to read it, you can tell the Marquis de Lafayette something which will bring him the greatest pleasure. That is, there is every reason to believe that if the new Constitution is adopted, his friend, General Washington, will be the chief. So what I'm pointing out here, and people hearing this on the radio, this is the first time that people are making a, you know, that people are connecting these dots. This is historic research, I think, connecting these these uh, these, these streams together, these, these pieces of evidence. Why is Hamilton writing this letter on September 8th to the French to go to Lafayette? And why on September 8th? And I think the answer is Hamilton knows he's now been appointed to the Committee on Style. He knows he's going to get to write the cover letter. If he writes the cover letter, what does the cover letter do? The cover letter is basically committing Washington. It's symbolic that Washington's going to sign this letter that's going to go and be published. And it was published in all 100 newspapers at the time. It's published around in broadsides, and this becomes the big topic of discussion. This is the Super Bowl with the uh, the Academy Awards wrapped together with the Final Four. This is this event of the news of this new constitution is going to be earth-shattering, and it all starts with this cover letter, right? So he's telling that Duchesne can tell Lafayette that if this constitution gets approved, I'm going to read it again, that if the constitution is adopted, his friend General Washington will be the chief, the chief meaning the president. So here's a little bit of detail, which is late-breaking news. So I wrote to the Library of Congress, and I pointed out to them that I would like to see this act. Do they have a scan of this September 8th letter, which is in the Hudson book from 1987 by James Hudson? And they finally got back to me, and they sent me, because it was in the French archives, a scanned copy from the French consular archives, from the French Foreign Ministry consular correspondence, page 909. They sent me the handwritten copy, the image. And here's the issue. The image that they sent me in Hamilton's handwriting does not match the the version which is in Hudson's book. And I think the reason for that is that Hudson probably was working off of a French translation. He didn't have access to the actual copy. He was probably working off of a French translation. So I'm not going to read it all, but that paragraph which I just read, which says that if the Constitution is adopted, his friend General Washington will be the chief, actually says, and I'm going to read that third paragraph, from Hamilton's handwriting stamped with the the archives, the, I can't read the R word, but the R period F. So R might be royal, but French archives. So you may, this is what the actual letter says, you may say one thing to the Marquis de Lafayette, which will interest him as much as anything I know, which is different from what the letter in in, uh, in Hudson's book says, which will interest him more than anything I know. So there's some differences, and I'm going to describe this. Man, you've ever played the game or heard of the game telephone when people uh, talk to one another and pass information from one person to another down the line? I now, never want... I never owned Dixie Cups or had string to make those things. You did those things, or I couldn't do that. I was a poor kid from you know Cuban origin. But you get the point, right? When you play that game of telephone, the the version that you start with can be very different than the version you end with. I, so I, I, I'm sorry, man. I don't understand that, that jargon because, you know, I went straight to I play doctor. 
So, you know, something it, I can do about it. It also works with Google Translate. If you translate something from English to Spanish in Google Translation, and then you use Google Translation to then convert it from Spanish to French, and then translate it from French back to English, you don't wind up with the identical version you started with because of the nature of translation. So this is the point I'm trying to make with this letter. Uh, so the, the letter from Hamilton Duchesne ends as follows. It says that if, if the new constitution uh, is adopted, his friend, General Washington, will be brought forth or brought forward as the head. doesn't say as the chief. He will be brought forward instead of saying that uh, he will be the chief. So that's a minor, subtle difference, but it makes a big difference. Which I think even further strengthens the Hamilton authorship thesis, meaning that Hamilton is saying that uh, on September 8th, the day he's appointed to this committee, that if, if it's adopted, Hamilton will be brought forward as the head. That's his language, brought forward. That's exactly what the cover letter does, is it brings forward Washington in the public mind as the guy that will be the face, that he'll be the leader, the head, the chief of the Constitution uh, as the new president. So that is uh, some of the work that's happening behind the scenes. That's the letter to Duchesne. Other things that I talk about on the website, so people should check it out, is other things. Uh, I want to talk with you about boarding houses. So, you know, Hamilton is from New York. When he's in Philadelphia, he's not staying in a hotel. He's staying in a boarding house. And there were several boarding houses operated by, in many cases, they were widows, where delegates would stay. They'd either stay with a friend, or, for example, Washington stayed with Robert Morris. Robert Morris was the wealthiest person in Philadelphia, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest American at the time, who winds up in poverty by the time he dies. But Washington stays with him in his mansion in Philadelphia. Uh, Madison stays at a boarding house called the Indian Princess or the Indian Queen. And um, it appears that there is evidence that Hamilton and Gouverneur Morris stayed together at a boarding house called Mrs. Daly's, Mrs. Daly's boarding house. And how do I know that? Because there's a letter that was written, and I put links so people can read these things. There was a letter written by Rufus King where he mentioned that he was traveling with Hamilton and that the two of them are staying. I'm sorry, was it Rufus King? It was, uh, it was Elbridge Jerry. Elbridge Jerry writes that he is staying with Hamilton at, um, at, at Mrs. Daly's boarding house. So this is the evidence that's coming together. If Madison stays at one place, but if Hamilton and Gouverneur Morris stay at the same boarding house, what do you think they're talking about at night between September 8th and September 12th? And I think the answer is obvious. If they're staying at the same boarding house, and you know the committee may have met, met waiting you know, late until the night anyway, but if Hamilton and Gouverneur Morris are staying in the same boarding house, I would bet you a fortune or a penny that uh, you know what, we, we, what they're talking about at night is the final version of the Constitution and the cover letter. So more to be continued next week. Let me just real quickly mention the, uh, the, the the fact that Juneteenth is coming up around the corner this week. Juneteenth is the day. It's, it should be, I think, a national holiday. Forty-seven states recognize it, almost 50 states, that you know, America has come a long way. And uh, you know the Civil War uh, did not end slavery. The Civil War ended slavery in the southern states. It took the ratification of the 13th Amendment to make slavery disappear in uh, the border states. And that's what finally ended slavery was the 13th Amendment. Uh, the other point is that we were stuck with the vestiges of slavery and the, you know, the heroic stain of slavery uh, through the civil rights movement. And I think there are still consequences of slavery today that we're working through. But uh, it's a holiday which is coming up. I invite people to read, at, read about it. Uh, and it, it's an important holiday that, to understand American history. And I think next week we'll, we'll continue. We'll wrap up this conversation because we didn't finish it. Uh, we, we ended on September 12th. 
but we have to get to September 17th. So we'll finish to get to September 17th, and then so people can read up if they want. I, I posted a PowerPoint that I'm going to be presenting to the Florida Council on History Education, and the Florida Council on History Education is teachers of all different age groups from you know, middle school and high school and also elementary, but I'll be presenting at their conference on July 31st. If any teachers are listening, uh, they should go to the Florida Council on History Education's annual conference. It's an online conference. So I did a presentation that I'm going to be presenting with Professor Thomas Aller, who is uh, from Boston University, and he's also a friend of mine from the AHA Society. So we're going to be talking, doing a presentation about Jay's Treaty and the diplomacy of Jay's Treaty. And that's something we've talked about other nights on this show, but I posted that PowerPoint on statutesandstories.com. So if anyone wants to read ahead, and Manny, if you want to read ahead, go to statutesandstories.com, go into the blog, look for the PowerPoint, which is fairly detailed, and, and we will talk about that next week. In a way, it's preparation for me for my presentation for the Florida Council on History Education at the end of July. And that will conclude our statutes and stories for tonight. You want to take us home, Manny? Ladies and gentlemen, that was another terrific expose of our history here on statutesandstories.com. Blink Radio 94.5. Thank you very much, Adam. Take care, my friends, and stay free. Night, everybody. <laughs>